and ask the Lord for his help as we look into this text. Uh, Father, we, we, we do pray. We pray for the help of your spirit. As we, anytime we open the scriptures, God, we, we want to do so um, with humility and, and with a recognition, God, that uh, one, you have made your word plain and we can understand it. And, and it's not uh, written in code, but it's written plainly. You want to communicate about yourself. But, but we also come realizing that in, in our own flesh, God, we, 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 we are kind of handicapped. And so we need the work of your Spirit, the illuminating work of your Spirit to see and to understand uh, more clearly the essence of what you're saying to us, God. And so I pray that you would help us to give attention to it, to, to really focus and to pay attention to words and phrases and, and to, 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 to grapple with meaning, God, but also... Uh, to rely upon your spirit to, to help us understand it and to see its application in our lives and in our church, God. And, and I pray that you would help us in light of even the recent uh, events of this week, God. This has been an interesting week in our nation and, and, um, and much, much to be thankful for and much to be uh, sober, uh, sobers us, God. Uh, we are thankful that another, yet there has been another uh, peaceful transfer of power in the presidency of this nation. And, and yet, um, we, we, we pray and beg God, you for mercy, God, as we uh, walk through this. Uh, I pray for President Obama and his family as they leave the White House and as they uh, settle into a new, a new phase of life. I, I am grateful for what his presidency represented in terms of, of um, progress since the civil rights era, God, and we're thankful for that. And I pray for him. I pray for his, his wife and daughters. Uh, that you would surround them with with people who are wise and godly and would would point them to to Christ and and um, may they find a church that would preach the scriptures and and, and herald the gospel and and uh, use that to to influence them greatly God we pray for uh, President Trump as well and we pray that, and ask the same thing surround him may those in his cabinet and those closest advisors of his, of his God may there be some Daniels in the mix. And, and, and that who would, who would be, fear you and love you and, and, and proclaim the gospel. And, um, and so we, we, we pray that you would do that. Um, we pray for our nation, God. It, it's, it's evident, it's clear that, that we are a divided uh, land right now. And, and some of these things are not new issues and fault lines, but they just seem to be more open and, and, than they have been. And so we, we pray for... Uh, we pray for healing in this in this land, and and um, and and but mostly our, our our biggest heart is to see unity in the church, and um, and so we pray, God. I, I ask that the oneness that Jesus prays for here, that we've just read, that it would be manifested in in this local expression of the body of Christ, and not just in our weekly assembly, not just that we can be one when we gather for an hour and a half every Sunday, but that it would be. I don't think that's the that's not what Jesus was limiting his prayer to. I think I, I pray that our lives would be more interconnected, that we would be of one heart and one mind, and we would be this inseparable identity that we have of, of lives connected together. And and Lord Lord work that in us. Help us to to defy as a church those lines that that so quickly divide our culture. And may we um, be one. May we manifest that unity that is already present, that objective unity that's present 
because Christ has broken down the wall of separation and has made us one. Now may we show that and, and flesh that out in very practical and tangible ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are, without question, many fractures in our nation right now, uh, many dividing lines, but I I would say probably none has been more pronounced over the last um, year or two than that of racial tension. It is very clear. It's certainly not a new fault line in this nation. It's not a new fault line in any nation. This is, this is not a new problem. But it, I would say it's, it's very open and very active right now, and particularly in recent months and years. And you could, you could see it in, in any number of ways. I mean, just consider the slogans, some of the slogans we hear so often right now, and, and the thoughts and the feelings they evoke for for, for you and for others, and, and the way that you see that, it's the black lives matter, or the blue lives matter, or the all lives matter. We have, we have you hear those, and you see those signs, and, and, and something comes in, and, and you, you have a perspective on that. But it's not just slogans, it's not, it's not just an issue, it's people. It's people. Mike Brown, and Eric Garner, and Walter Scott, and Freddie Gray... Lauren Ahrens, or Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, Patricio Zamaripa, police officers in Dallas. And so, so it's people, it's lives. And, and the political turmoil over the last year, I think, has just been intensified with the, uh, the, the, has just intensified the division over the last year, particularly in a presidential election cycle. Uh, statistically, uh, ethnic and party lines tend to be pretty closely aligned. Not exclusively, but generally. Many are divided along ethnic lines and within ethnic uh, lines when it comes to the evaluation of President Obama's legacy. Many are divided along ethnic lines over the election of Donald Trump and, and, and what the expected uh, outcome and effects will be of his presidency. Questions about race and racism continue to simmer. Is racism still a problem? If so, why? Um, who's to blame? You, you hear comments and you read uh, in articles, white people are, are racist and, and won't admit it. And then others, uh, black people always play the race card. And that's just white, black. I know there are ethnic issues that's much more complex and much more shaded. And there's immigration issues. Is, is racism systemic and institutional or is it just individual? And what about immigration and all the issues that are related to that? Now, if you're waiting for me to answer all those questions and to uh, solve all of those dilemmas this morning, you are going to be disappointed. Uh, that is not our aim. I intentionally wanted to kick over a bunch of rocks right at the beginning, and then let's let's see what the scriptures say and how they help us. But but we need to sense the environment that we are living in. I do care about racial division in our nation, and I hope you do too, and 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 I'm confident you do, and and because there is there is racial prejudice, discrimination, racism. It's it's alive and well. I, I'm just going to give a definition. I know there are different ways to define it, but I think this is a fairly agreed-upon definition by Mark Tatlock of, of racism. He said, that deeply held belief that one's ethnicity or cultural heritage justifies a sense of superiority over those of other backgrounds, resulting in discrimination, segregation, or unjust treatment toward them. 
And so I think we can say that that's still present in our culture. It's un- unquestionable. But my greater concern is not, is not, is not our nation. It's not the world. It's, it's, our ch- it's the church. It's the church. This is one of those areas, like many, where the sins of the world have become the sins of the church. There are, there are dividing lines in, in, the, in, the, in the culture, that, in, the, in the world, that have made their way into the body of Christ. And certainly our nation bears that out. And I have white churches and black churches and segregated churches. And there remains division um, in churches along ethnic lines. It's not just a past tense thing. By God's grace, there has been progress. But I would say it's been slow. I'm going to read a quote from Tony Carter, again, pastor at East Point Church, a friend of ours. And, and, but I think this is, this is in a book he wrote on being black and reformed. And, and he says this, he says, Segregation in the church can be analogized to a limp. It is a disability in the body of Christ that everyone sees, that everyone abhors, but that few within the conservative evangelical church have been willing to address. But it seems that the evangelical church in America is finally realizing that the limp that is segregation and discrimination in our pews and pulpits is due in large part to white Christians having kicked black Christians in the shins at a time in the history of the American church when open arms should have been the order of the day. Nevertheless, the limping is becoming less pronounced. Now, listen, my aim is not to beat ourselves up or to beat... I don't want us to beat one another up on this issue. That's not the point. The, 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 and the answer is not a single sermon. It's not a year-long sermon series. It's not that we've got to write the perfect book or hope somebody else does and we can read it and we can all agree. There is no magic medicine here that, that, that can take away this limp. Um, but we also shouldn't just concede defeat. And say, well, it's just so complicated, it's so complex, and the issue, and the divide is so deep, and 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 we can't we can't just give in. We we can't be given over to finger pointing or to cynicism or to despair. By God's grace, we can work towards reconciliation and 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 to become a church that increasingly reflects the wonderful diversity of this community right here. I'm talking about our local assembly. And, and this is what best reflects the gospel. This is what best prepares us for heaven. And, and, and so we can, we can work towards that. The answer isn't magic. There's no silver bullet, but it's discipleship. That's what, that's what it is. It's believing, proclaiming, applying, being transformed by living out the gospel, the gospel which is God's answer to man's sin problem, including racism and and disharmony, it's, it's, it's doing all of that, living out the gospel in the context of meaningful relationships, close biblical community. That's what, that's what we want to do here. It's not simple, it's not trite, it's not immediate, but it is good. And God blesses it. And so, so to see progress, we, we have to be active. and we, It won't just happen. It's not just preach the gospel and it will all work out. Um, there were many churches that were just preaching the gospel during segregation and before that. And so as we preach the gospel, we need to actively pray in line with the gospel, plead for God's help and the, for the gospel to be manifested in our relationships. And, and we need to actively root out weeds of, of prejudice and in our own hearts that remain to be transformed by the gospel. 
We, we need to put off those, those words and actions and thoughts and feelings that are contrary to that aim of, of diversity that God desires to, in, in our church. We need to actively put on words and thoughts and actions and feelings which support that aim to live that gospel out. Listen and forgive and, and be patient and prefer one another in love. All those things. And so enter 1 Peter 3.8. And so we're here now, 1 Peter 3.8. And, and, and this is the verse, one verse we're going to focus on this morning. In the context of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to um, suffering Christians. And so he, he writes to encourage them, to help them faithfully endure through trials and persecution that they're, that they're undergoing. The letter is addressed, you see, to, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So these were Christians who were scattered throughout that ancient world, and he describes where they are, believers dispersed in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. This is kind of modern-day Turkey. And so this, these were very ethnically diverse territories, and, 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 and yet they're firmly under Roman control. And so Greco-Roman culture is, is what they're influenced by. They're squeezed into that mold. And, and so it seems clear that as you read through Peter's letter, that he's writing primarily to Gentile Christians, but, but there are some from Jewish background as well. It was a, mix, it was a mixed church, and, and these readers have been, have been or he says they're exiles, elect exiles. Maybe they were literal exiles. Maybe they were there, they've been had to travel there because of persecution. Most think that's probably not the case at this point. Uh, but they're certainly at least spiritual exiles. They're citizens of heaven living in, living in a hostile world, and, and awaiting that future inheritance. And so they're, in essence, they're, they're exiles. They're suffering. Their suffering came in many forms. It came in the forms of slander and riots and abuse from authorities and social ostracism and many, many forms in which persecution came. And Peter encourages these believers, again, to live with hope, to live with joy in the face of these sufferings. And that, that hope, he, he roots that hope in the death and resurrection of Christ and what Christ has accomplished and also in this hope that's yet to come of this future inheritance. And so we live in this time and he says, have, have hope, have joy. But, but one of the things that I think Peter knows is that with all that pressure coming from without, all the persecution from without, the hostile culture, there's, there's a tendency for division within. And that pressure, that pressure, it's going gonna, it's gonna to expose fault lines in the church and division. So Peter writes, encouraging them to get along and how they relate to one another, submitting to proper authority. And so that's what you see in chapter 2 and, and earlier in chapter 3. And so this brings us to verse 8. He's summing up what he's written about relationships and how, how to get along. And he lays out these five virtues that should characterize every believer. These five normative qualities for every Christian. Because they reflect the very person and, and, and attitude and example of Christ. So he, so he says, have this. And so verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So I want to walk through this short little verse and consider each of these five virtues. And then we're going to kind of come back and and apply this to the matter of racial reconciliation in the church. This is the relational glue that holds us together when, with, with all the swirling currents in the culture around us and trying to tear us apart. So he says, 
finally, this is not the final final of the letter. This is the last thing Peter's going to say. It's chapter 3, not chapter 5. And, and so this isn't like the preacher who says, you know, one more thing, and then he has eight more things to say. I, I've heard of guys like that. Um, but, what, but this finally, he's summing up what he said about relationships. This is the culmination of that. In summary, this is what I want you to really get and, and take this home. He says, finally, all of you, all means all, every single person. He's not, he's not singling out one group in the church and say, you guys really need to work on this. He's not, he's not, he's not separating those that, that need this, those that don't. This is for everyone. He says this applies to every single Christian in every situation in life, all of you. And this includes relationships across and within ethnic lines. And so what, what, do, what do you expect Peter to finally say to them? What, what, what is this going to be his last word uh, to them? Tell, tell them how to speak. Tell them what to do. Tell them, tell them how to act. The city tells them how to feel. It's interesting, I think. He commands, we could say, emotions of them. How can you do that? I mean, I grew up being taught and believing that you can't command emotions. It's just kind of a passive thing that something just kind of washes over you. And we've seen this is how it's usually portrayed on movies and television. But, but they're commanded all over Scripture. Whether you and I can actually feel them or do them or not really isn't the issue. They are commanded by God. And, and it's not uncommon for God to command something that we ought to experience even if we don't. And, and so God commands that we, in a sense, feel certain ways toward one another. Now it could be argued that the first virtue that we're going to look at is not really a feeling. But certainly the other four clearly are. And so what do, we, what do we need to learn to overcome this us-them uh, mindset in the church that's surrounded by an us-them culture? And that's what we're going to see. First thing that we see is to learn to live in parts. Learn to live in parts. Have unity of mind. And what I, what I mean when I say learn to live in parts, it sounds contrary to what, the whole point of this message. But you think of singing in parts. If you're a musician, if you're been in part of choir, you're singing parts, you're singing in harmony. You're, 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 that's, that's the opposite of singing in unison, where we all sing the same notes, the same melody, and it's just, we're all singing the exact, we go up at the same time, we go down at the same time. But we sing in harmony, you have, you have uh, everybody singing different notes being sung, but they all coordinate. Different notes sung by different people, different lines of music being read. So you have the sopranos and the altos and the tenors and the, and the bass and so the baritones. You're singing, you're singing those different parts. But, but you're, you're singing the same song. And, and you're, 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 you have the same goal of making this piece of music sound beautiful. And, and, you, and you're complimenting one another. You're listening to one another. You're blending your voices together as you sing this one song. So that's what I sort of mean when I say live in parts. That's what, I think that's what Peter's communicating. So have, have unity of mind. In the church, we must learn to, to live in parts. We must learn to live harmoniously. This is what it means to have unity of mind. It does not mean uniformity. The church doesn't live in unison with one another. Or we, we do everything the same and think about the same about everything. It doesn't mean we all... We're all the same. We have the same tastes and same interests and same 
preferences and same hobbies and same gifts and same backgrounds and we think the exact same way on every issue. That's not, that's not what it is. But it does mean we're, we're living the same song. We have the same goal, which is the glory of God. And we're looking at the same sheet of music, the scriptures. We're studying it. And we're following the same song leader, Christ. And we aren't stepping on one another or over one another, but we're complementing one another. And we have many diverse parts, but yet it's one. We're listening to one another. We're not trying to make sure that our voice is heard over everybody else's. So everybody can hear, hear my part. No, we're, we're blending together. And that's, that's, that's what Peter is calling on church. With all these pressures from without... All the fractures out there, all the division, all the hostility out there, brothers and sisters in the church. We we gotta be a unit, we gotta have unity of mind. We gotta live in harmony with one another. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, music is much more beautiful when it's when it when it's, when it's sung in harmony than in unison. And and I love to hear I love to sit around people that can sing in parts. And, and to hear those parts, because I can't. I'm, I'm not that skilled of a singer, and so I just sing the melody all the time. And, but I rely upon you who to fill it out and to make it beautiful and to make it full. Blend it together. It's this great thing. And, and, and this is what we should love and value in the church. We should love that diversity. We should love living in parts as we, as we labor to, to, to live the same song together. And, and, and this should be our aim. Same head, same mission, same aim, but we, we, we're different. Do you, let me just ask, does your attitude encourage that kind of harmony in the church? Do your thoughts and your words and your actions contribute to or detract from harmony in the church? Do you value that harmony? Do you value the altos? <laughs> Do you, do you value those that are different, but yet they, 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 they're blending together? That's the first thing Paul says, or Peter says. You've got you to have unity of mind. This is essential. Second, second thing we must learn if we're going to, if we're going to have an us-them church in the midst of a, uh, or we're going to, going to overcome that in a culture that is divided along those lines, we have to learn to share others' feelings with you. I know that is a horribly worded point, and that's by design. We say things like, you need to learn, your, learn to share your feelings with others. So this is that in reverse. It's a good thing to share your feelings with others, and I'm not against that. But we, got, we, got, we have to learn to, sh- to feel other people's feelings. That's what, that's what he's saying. He says, have sympathy. Have sympathy. It just means to feel with, to suffer with. That's that word. It means that you, well, that what affects you affects me. It, it means caring for the things that you care about. It's feeling what others feel. It's entering into their grief, not just having compassion from a safe distance, but entering in to what they feel. This is sympathy. This is the word that Peter is using. It's not quick and it's not casual and it's not efficient. It's it's quiet generally. And it's time intensive. And it's presence intensive. You have to be together. And so, but this is what he, he says. You've you got to have sympathy. You, do you enter into the feelings of other people? 
Let's give you a little example of what this, I think, looks like. And I think you could say the same things. I, I, I just know as a pastor, and, and there have been those times, the phone rings, particularly if it's late at night, and you think, okay, if, especially if it's the home phone, something's wrong. You answer the, and then sometimes tell the marketer, but usually something's wrong. So you answer the phone, and on the other voice, other end of the line, tragedy. Somebody's saying something happened, and 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 so you 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 hear what's happened, and generally the first thing I do when I get off the phone is I just cry. I, I have a, a long cry, and I pray, but, but I, I sob because I'm stunned by whatever news I just heard, whether it's death or or some diagnosis of disease, whether it's a job loss, whether it's um, abandonment, whether it's abuse, whatever it is, it, it just tragedy strikes and it hurts. But then, 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 all right, I, I need to go. I need to be with them. And so you go and you show up and you start kind of talking with people and working around. I'm okay. I, I have work to do as a pastor. I don't want to just go in as this puddle of tears. It's not helpful, generally. But then there's always something that triggers it for me. And I'm okay until I make it to somebody and they're crying. And, and, and it's something about other people's tears that causes me to weep. It's not just, it's not just the tragedy itself that gets you. It's the, it's the way that others are experiencing the tragedy that gets you. You see the difference? So, I mean, there's times when I, I don't know the person that, that died or I have no personal connection, but I do know the person that's talking to me. And I know they're grieving, and I grieve for them. I mean, I'm not holding myself an example of sympathy. I'm just saying that you see this in your own life, and this is what, Paul's descri- or what Peter's describing. It's, this very, it's a very Christ-like thing to cry when others are crying and to be happy when others are happy. This is what Peter's saying, you have unity of mind, have sympathy, enter in to share the feelings of others. Third, third thing we need to learn is to learn to love like your family, because you are family. It says have brotherly love, brotherly love, not just a gutting it out kind of love, loving because I have to, because it's responsibility, said it's that sheer force of the will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's best for you. There is a place for that. But this is not what Peter's talking about. This is brotherly love. He's talking about affectionate, warm, family kind of love. Brotherly love. Now again, as Eric so kind of alluding to, you can only imagine the mental images that flooded Peter's mind as he writes this right here. Talking about brotherly love. How many times did he hear Christ command them to love one another? How many times did he see love displayed by Jesus in, in, in so many different ways? Love in action. Was he, was, he, was he thinking of Jesus getting down on his knees and washing Peter's dirty, nasty feet and, and then commanding the disciples to love one another? Just like Jesus loved. Was he remembering his repeated denials of Christ and, and yet Jesus' loving, tender restoration of Peter and then, and then that, that piercing question of Christ, Peter, do you love me? It's the same word that last time. Was he remembering the greatest demonstration of love, the cross? Peter is a witness 
Do you, so he says, brotherly love, tender, affectionate, family-like love. Do you, do you love others in the church? Do you love those who, even those who are different from you? Not like acquaintances, but like brothers and sisters. Fourth, fourth, learn to promote good gut health. I know that's a, that's a phrase that I've only heard in the last year or two, but I hear it all the time now. Gut health. I think that's still a weird one for me, but some of you then diet stuff and you got your little shakes and all that. You talk about gut health. I'm using it, so I'm taking it. Uh, gut health. He says, have a tender heart. Literally be well boweled. That's why we're getting gut health out of this. If you were wondering, uh, the, the, be, be kind, have kind bowels, good bowels. Ancient Near East, the bowels or the viscera, this was, this was seen as the, the seed of, 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 of human emotions and tender affections. It was a metaphor for that. And, and, and so this is a deep, powerful, strong word to communicate this compassion. This is what he's saying. It's, it's that deep feeling in your gut. And we have such empathy for a fellow believer's need and their situation that we, we, there's this kind of gnawing psychosomatic pain in our stomach. We hurt for them. This is, this is tender heartedness. Those, those who are, those who, those with tender hearts, they're, they're, they're very aware of people. Their situation, they, they care deeply for others. Have a conscience that that's very sensitive to, to, how, to the impact that their words and their actions might have on other people, particularly those who are hurting. And if they should ever cause damage or hurt to that person, they're quick, they're affected, and they're quick to repent and to restore and to repair whatever it is they've broken. That's, that's a tender-hearted person. They're not the ones that are Reposting every sarcastic comment on Facebook, generally. They're tender-hearted. They, 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 they ache about how is this going to be received? How will this be understood? How's your gut health? Are, are you frequently moved by the concerns and the hurts of others? Do you deeply care for others and what they're, what they're going through? Or is your heart hard? Are you generally kind of mean-spirited, cold, prickly? Are you overly stern? Are you, it's difficult to feel what others feel, especially those who are different from you or maybe those that, that you kind of see as opposition. Um, I would just say this is an area we probably all have much room to grow in. I, I, this is, I don't, I don't want to make a broad generalization, but I would say in those churches that tend to be a little more cognitively oriented, we, we, we sometimes are short on tenderheartedness. And, and let's, like, let's make that a matter of prayer, though. I have been this week. God, give me a tender heart through the renewing, transforming work of your spirit. Just as, as I preach the gospel to myself, as I... Is that God's love for me in Christ, God, just tenderize my own bowels and feel for others. And fifth, finally, we're not, this is not the finally. This is like Peter's finally. We're going to go right back through him again. So just, just don't get too excited there. <laughs> uh, 
Learn to think less. And all the youth say, yes. I'm glad he said that. Remember what the, that's the only thing they're going to hear from me this morning. Learn to think less about you. <laughs> about you. He finally says, have a, have a humble mind. Have a humble mind. It's the opposite of arrogance and pride. This is it's just thinking lowly, esteeming ourselves small. Stop thinking poorly of ourselves and beating ourselves up all the time or kind of having this abusive self-deprecation where we're always just... Uh, that's not it. That can actually be a, an evidence of pride in, in a heart. But, but it's having the proper estimate of yourself before God. It's seeing yourself in light of who God is and what God has done and seeing yourself rightly. It's, it's, it's the only good in me is Christ, but Christ is in me. And, and it's, it's seeing others and thinking of others before ourselves. This is humility of mind. And, and get this, it's not just playing the part of a servant. It's not just kind of mustering up the, the will to do some humble deeds and to, 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 to serve others in some act. That's not it. That's not, I mean, that's good, but that's not what Peter's talking about. He says, have a humble mind or spirit inside of you. There needs to be there needs to be, with all sincerity, this lowly-mindedness. That's, that's, that's deeper. That's harder for me. And this is, though, this is that virtue that Christ elevated as supreme over every other one, isn't it? And this is the supreme need in the church today. Humility. Humility of mind. As I've been thinking through this list of virtues this week and Trying to see, is there an order to this? Is there, is there a pattern here? Is there uh, some kind of logical sequence? Or is Peter just kind of, you know, things coming in his mind by the, in the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's just writing them down? I, I'm not certain, uh, so I don't want to press this too hard, but I, as I've been thinking about it, I, I, I would see this. I would see unity of mind being basically the highest goal. Like, that's that's kind of what we're working towards. And it all begins with humility of mind. Um, and then everything else is connected in between. So start with humility. A broken, humble person is going to be a tender-hearted person. And, a ten, and that tender-heartedness leads to family-like uh, brotherliness. And that brotherly love leads to feeling together, sympathy, and, and when we enter into one another's feelings, that's going to provide remarkable unity. And so I, I, I think perhaps that is what's going on here as Peter writes this. But he says, in some, finally, all of you, every single one of you, no exceptions, every kind of situation, circumstance, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so, let's talk now about how this verse and this situation, I realize Peter's not addressing the issue of racial reconciliation. That's not his, his point in writing. He's, he's, he's talking about relationships, though, and, and I think this applies to all areas, including this matter. And so, let's bring that and make application here in, for us. I mean, the history of these issues related to race, ethnicity, cultural differences. It's long. It's dark. 
It's complicated, um, confusing at times. So, it's, so we, need, we're, we need to be mindful of that. And the questions associated with these issues are very complex. Um, and, and not only that, we bring us to the equation, don't we? We bring all of our experiences and our, all of our background and all of our baggage and all of our personalities and backgrounds and cultures and relationships. We bring all of that to the table. And none of us are the same. And this is one of the lessons a sister in Christ in this church was gracious to... to uh, God used her to teach me is, hey, I know this sounds so stupid to even say, oh, black people don't think the same. I needed to learn that. I know all white people don't think the same. All brown people don't think the same. And, and so we've we got we to gotta learn this. And so we, we, we think differently, and, and, and nobody's the same. So we bring all of that, and so it just makes it complicated. And the way forward is not, I need to convince everybody else to think the way that I think. I see what's wrong out there. I, I know what it's going to take to fix it, and so I just need to convince everyone else. That's not, it's not living in parts. Before we, before we, and this is what Peter would say, before we say anything, before we do anything, I think he would say, you need to feel something. You should have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If we can cultivate these virtues in our church and continue to, then we can talk about complex issues of race without being divided. And I'm not, this is again, not a, Anyway, school. I'm grateful for that. I have enjoyed that. I have grown here because of the freedom that I've been allowed to do to work through these issues. Issues that I was oblivious to before I came to Georgia and moved here to this church. And so I am, I am grateful for that. But I just say, let's, let's continue on. Let's excel more, brothers and sisters. We, we, we can listen. And if we, if we cultivate these virtues, we'll listen and not just talk. We'll We'll give preference to one another. And so let's run back through the list and make some application. So unity of mind. Unity of mind. How, how can Christians in the same church, reading the same Bible and looking at the same news headlines, how can we land in such different places on these issues? How is that possible? Um, it's diff- certain people think differently. And, 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 and so we, we can disagree even as like-minded Christians within ethnic Groups and across ethnic lines, and I, I can't answer that. So don't don't. That was sort of rhetorical. So don't expect an answer. But it is something to think about. But into that messiness, Peter says, have unity of mind. He's talking to us, church, every one of us, have unity of mind. And again, some may be thinking when they hear that, yes, I agree with that. Just think like me. Think like my mind. You, you know, I, I, you know the, the, think the right way, the way I think, and then we'll be one. It's not what Peter's saying. I don't think this requires that we agree on every little issue um, related to race or any, any matter, complex matter. But I'm, I'm confident God's word, I'm confident the gospel does apply to even this messy matter. And it applies to us together. There are things we should, as a church, feel together. There are things, as a church, we should deeply believe together. 
There are things we should oppose together. There are things we should celebrate together. There are things we should lament together. There are things we should support together. Now again, I know the issues are complicated. I'm not glossing over that. And I'm not trying to attempt to lay down what right conclusions are in every complicated issue. And, and, but I don't want us to wiggle out from underneath the weight of Peter's words here. And he says, have unity of mind. Be together. There needs to be a marked, definite uh, uh, t- togetherness to our church. Even across lines that divide our culture. So we have to emphasize, we have to prioritize our common spiritual bond over all of our particularities. We must not caricature our brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us. We must not judge or assume the motives of, of those who don't see things the way we see things. They see them from a different angle. And so our shared commitment for the glory of God and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the, and the mission of making disciples of all nations, that, that sh- that's got to shape, us, uh, shape the way that we handle disagreements and differences and, and process different approaches. This is, so this is, we've got we to come there. Kind of unity of mind. We've got to live in parts together. And then sympathy. Sympathy. Even when we don't see things to eye, eye to eye, even when we, two brothers and sisters in Christ, they see one narrative unfolding in the culture, this other person sees a different narrative unfolding in the culture, even when that's happened, we need to be able to weep with those who weep. We've we, we got to take time and do the hard work of wrestling to understand the fears and the struggles and the hurts and the joys of others. We've got to walk in their shoes. We've got to ask God to help, help make sense of, of, of the whole range of emotions and experiences that, 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 that play into this issue for them, for other people around us that God has put in our lives. One of the most hurtful experiences, this is true in any issue, any area, but one of the most hurtful experiences to be, is to be reeling with grief over a situation and to have someone come up, come close to you that won't even acknowledge that it's even painful or worth grieving over. That hurts. It may not say it like this, but it's kind of like, just get over it. It's not, it's not worth crying about. Maybe they're even... Maybe they even mock it as, as kind of a non-issue. They probably, again, they won't do it face-to-face, but maybe on Facebook. And, and you're just cutting, you're cutting people. It's not sympathy. And, and so I say that, again, my fellow fair-skinned brothers and sisters in Christ, um, this is, again, not in any way a skull, but, and I'm not saying it's guilty of this, but with all that's gone on in the past year, we should, we should resist the urge to insist that, that black Americans should not be upset. Um, instead, we should, we should spend more time asking why some are. Does that make sense? That's sympathy. It's not that I have to fully understand or 100% agree with a different perspective. That's not, that's not what's required. That's not what's necessary. We don't have to get that settled before we have sympathy. Is that I, I, I can tell you're hurting. 
I want to share that hurt with you. And, and enter into that situation. Ask and listen and feel and share that. That's sympathy. How well do you listen to others? Have you asked questions over the last year for people? Have you had conversations? Have you asked how people think and feel about these differences? Have you listened well? Sympathy is a must for us. As we have said as a vision to pursue multicultural, multi-ethnic diversity in our church and to have a diversity that reflects our community, I think that's a good goal. But if we don't have sympathy, we are spinning our wheels. And we may be doing more harm, we could do more harm than good. Um, one writer I read this week in an article said, diversity with, I think this is on the screen, diversity without sympathy is how you get assimilation. That's not our goal. Diversity with sympathy is the key to unity. The former says, be here, be with us, but we don't really care how you're doing, just be like us. The latter says something much different. It says, come here, affect us. That's what we're looking for. Third, brotherly love. Now, don't overthink this one. (laughs) Just love one another like we're family. Again, because we are. There aren't white people in our church and black people in our church and brown people in our church. There are white brothers and sisters, brown brothers and sisters, black brothers and sisters. We're family. We're together. We're the household of God. And in Christ, that family identity is far more important than our ethnic identities. It doesn't erase those, it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate them or minimize them, but, but the greater, the more intimate, the more permanent reality and identity is our union, our connection in Christ. That's what we stress. Are you feeling, are you acting, are you speaking like brothers and sisters to those even in the church who may see things different than you? We need love, we need brotherly love. We need Love that is patient toward those who just don't seem to get it. We need love that is kind to those who disagree with us. We need love that doesn't envy or boast, that is not arrogant or rude, that that does not insist on its own way and is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. That's the kind of love we need. Sincere, brotherly love will change the climate of our conversations on these issues. And fourth, a tender heart. A tender heart, and we've touched on this already. Do you care what others are going through? Or are you more irritated when someone brings up these issues that maybe you don't see eye to eye on? You get angry. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you feel hurt for those who feel like their lives are considered less valuable than others? When you hear someone in the church share about an experience with, with maybe racial discrimination or prejudice in, in, in our country or in the church, is your heart pricked for them? Is it tender toward them? And then finally, a humble mind. Pride is always telling us that those people are the problem. They're the ones who need to change. They're the ones who are theologically, culturally, or socially inadequate or, or ignorant or something. But meaningful progress in racial reconciliation, multi-ethnic diversity, it's going to be immeasurably slow when humility is in short supply. So we know how Paul links humility to Christ. Philippians 2, 
1 and following there. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, listen to this description, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that's what we're talking about. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's Christ. He's who we look to. Now, there's an episode in Peter's life um, most of you are familiar with, when he, when he doesn't live these words out. Um, even the apostle Peter struggled to put this truth into practice just like we do. And in Galatians 2, particularly as it relates to this matter of race and ethnicity, in Galatians 2, our boy Peter, he's confronted by the apostle Paul over his sin in this very area. He came to Antioch, Peter came to Antioch to spend time with the, all the Gentile Christians there, and, and, and so he hung out with them, and he ate pulled pork sandwiches with them, and, and they just had a great time together, until some Jews came from Jerusalem. These Jews from James and Jerusalem came to check on things, and, and as soon as they came into town, Peter separated from the Gentile believers, had nothing to do with them. And he, and he led a, this poor example for other Jewish believers so that, so that Barnabas, even Barnabas, is, is separates and isolates himself from these Gentiles. And so Galatians 2, 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... You see, this? I know, I, I understand this is not the gospel, but this is a gospel issue. You, you look in the book of Ephesians and you'll see how closely connected it is. The, one of the first implications of, of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Christ and reconciling us to himself through the, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then we receive that gift of salvation and forgiveness by faith, and, and, and by faith alone in Christ alone. And, and so we receive that, and one of the first things he says, now you're, you're, not, you're no longer divided. God has broken down this wall of enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile, and, and you're not alien, you're one in Christ. You're one. And so manifest that. So it's a gospel issue. But he said, Paul sees this, Peter, as he's, he, 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 he separates, he shows this, this, this hurtful hypocrisy in the way he treats these Gentiles as a Jew. And so Peter, Paul says, their conduct, it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though being a Jew, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? See, none of us are exempt from the need to grow in this area. We, we need God. I need God. I need help. I mean, I, I, this is always, these are hard messages to preach. These are the ones that I get most email and comments, and I, and I welcome them, and I welcome your feedback, because I do need to learn. I, 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 I know I don't think rightly about these issues, and there are blind spots, and 
So I, I welcome help and input, and I ask for forbearance. These are hard things to work through, um, and I do so with nothing but love and appreciation for this flock and for you. You've, you, I'm just trying to catch up with most of you, and even in thinking about these areas. And so, but I, and these are hard. These are hard issues to work through. Um, we need God. We need the help of His Spirit. We need the guidance of his word. We need the accountability and the encouragement of his, of his church. And we need the vision of Christ. And you see it in, finally, Re- Revelation chapter, this is a real finally, Revelation 7, uh, 9 and, and 10. And you see this picture. It's Jesus at the middle. It's not, it's not, there are ethnic, ethnicities represented and there is diversity around the throne, but there is one thing that unifies him, and it's the, 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 the crucified and risen Lamb of God. And so it's after this, I, Revelation 7, 9 and 10, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, all ethnicities, all groups and divisions of people standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the prospect. That's what's coming. That's the vision that's got to just pull us forward in this. And so that's what it urges us to, God, please help this, this little church, this Baraka Bible church in this community, help us to, to, to just be this tiny little outpost in time and space of what will one day be in eternity. That's what we want. It's not about a social agenda or political agenda or we want to be cool and trendy and, and, and be this example of a multi-ethnic church. It's, it's just we want to reflect the gospel and we want, to, we want to be drawn toward that vision that's coming. Lord God, help us give, get grasp that. That's why we put in a five-year vision. It's not because we're trying to be cute and clever or, or, or because we're beating ourselves up, but it's because of this that we, we say in our, in our Vision 2020 statement, we want to see a, 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 a congregation and leadership that increasingly reflects the diversity of this community. And how are we going to make progress in that? It's many things. But this is, again, this is central to it. It's finally, all of us, it's not, don't point fingers across the aisle. And I'm, All of us have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humility of mind. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father, would you work these deep in us, God? Uh, these are foreign to us, naturally. These are not natural qualities. Um, this is a strange thing when we really think about it. So contrary to what's, what's normal and natural and, 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 and coming from us in ourselves. But we, we see these as, as needs that you've got to work in us, God. It's got to be the work of your Spirit in us. And we, we, pray, that, we pray that you would. Grow us individually and as a congregation in these areas. And um, for, for the sake of uh, putting on full display the beauty of the gospel and the, the vision that Christ has, um, help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.